I do think that ERP was a bit oversold in the beginning, and I was part of that system integrator world that was overselling it. Welcome to the GBS Masterminds podcast, the one and only platform for global business service leaders to share their experiences of building world-class shared service organizations. My name is Sashi Narahari, founder and CEO of iRadius, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm honored to host Stephen Hosley, a GBS leader with 20 years of experience in building and leading new lines of business and driving operational excellence programs. Stephen has explored several leadership positions across top organizations like KPMG, AOL, Hackett, and now is the SVP of OneSource, Estee Lauder's first ever GBS organization. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Good to see you again, Sashi. Stephen, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career journey? I was born and raised in Connecticut. I went to school in Boston. I don't know if you'll lose half of your viewership here, but I am a Red Sox fan. So uh, it's just part of my blood. Uh, Out of school, I worked for a company called Wang Laboratories, then joined KPMG Consulting, uh, then decided to do shared services uh, myself uh, and just kind of instill it instead of consulting about it, uh, actually own it. Uh, so I joined Applied Materials. Then um, wanted to get back home a little bit closer to my mom back in Connecticut and uh, moved to AOL Time Warner. And then I turned 50 and had an epiphany of, you know, I felt like I needed to do something a little bit more purposeful. So I created a, um, a BPO organization onshore, like, a, you know, it was a startup. And I wanted to kind of prove that you could have an onshore BPO successful commercial operation. We did it with um, with military spouses and veterans. So a, kind of a community that was kind of overlooked by the commercial community in some cases. We got the company up to about two, 300 people. It's still rocking Liberty Source. I'm really proud of it. One of my most proudest achievements. I was there for four or five years creating it with um, Deborah Copps and Cindy Gallagher and a few others. Uh, and then... Uh, went back into multinationals with SD Lauder, my current place. And because Liberty Source had such a, I mean, that was really tugging on my heartstrings. I wasn't just going to land back in commercial uh, in a commercial engagement at just, at just yet another company. And Estee Lauder is, is that company. It's a company where quite commonly you quote Mrs. Lauder to get a point across, right? Like it's a value-based company. So the heart heartbeat of the founder is still in the hallways and is something that uh, makes us, I think, a special company and a special company. To, and they've never done shared services, 30 different brands, $60 billion uh, in growing. It's a growth company. So um, it was a great recipe to start back into commercial and uh, do something that I kind of know. Awesome. Steven, so your midlife crisis story is the most touching story I've heard. So for the other GBS leaders here, they want to find out more about this ability to recruit onshore, it seems like the veterans and their spouses, where should they look things up? Military Spouse Employment Partnership, S-M-S-E-P, M-S-E-P, is, um, I think it's a government-run agency. I plugged into that. And so all the military spouses, it's an affiliation. They're all affiliated with it. But a lot of big multinationals plug in there because it's a really an untapped uh, talent pool um, of really skilled men and women that are, you know, that's where we kind of, uh, that's what Liberty Source was kind of founded on, on that uh, group of people. Amazing. Very impressive. Thanks for doing that. Yep. yep. All right. So we're now going to switch Stephen into the $6 million questions that every GBS okay. leader wants to know the answers to. The first okay. one is the classic. 
you have designed and led multiple GBS organizations. Of course, you founded Liberty Source as an alternative to BPOs. Based on your experience, which model would you recommend? I've uh, you know, created a BPO and ran a BPO. Then I've created shared services and then I've run P&L. So I've kind of been on both sides of the table. I think it's all about creating as many levers of opportunity as possible. So I would say like a hybrid model. My belief is that everybody's business model, regardless of industry, is changing at a record pace, right? And now we have this war on talent, right? So why wouldn't you have both oars in the water, right? Why wouldn't you have a BPO operation going that has their oar in the water and they have recruiting pools and talents and maybe a geography uh, footprint that's different than yours? And then you have your captive center in, you know, or in the water. And so I just think you can pivot quicker when needs and wants, because it's all about staying relevant to the business. Awesome. Mm-hmm. The second million dollar question is harmonize and standardize first versus lift and shift. What's the right approach in your view? Way back in my career, I was very much a harmonize first. And so it was 20 years ago. Now they weren't ready for prime time. Well, that's changed significantly since then. So I was very much a harmonized first and then, and then, you know, then shifted over for just the machine of BPO to take it from there and they wouldn't really change anything. I think uh, now I've subscribed more to a lift and shift. I think the BPOs are a lot more capable um, as long as you can get your economic terms the right way and your contracting and the processes maybe don't have huge end user uh, impact. And maybe they're a little bit more narrow in their end end user impact area and they're a little bit less less risky. I think a BPO provider is more than capable of taking work that might not be perfect and make it better, right? Keep in mind that I think everyone has to just be aware that your whole portfolio of services. So each one of those have different needs and wants. Like the counter support, I don't have BPO supporting that. I have other ELC. I have captive ELC people that know our culture and know know what's the rhythm on on the counters, what the different brands, the 30 different brands we have, a lot of awareness around that. That's an area. Finance and accounting transactions, I have BPO over that in that space. Not a large end user community. It's uh, compact. Those processes aren't that much, don't have to change that much. And there was there's a quote that one of my uh, CFO gave me one time. I was coming in and I laid out my plan for the year. And he said, well, Steve, I think good is good enough. And his point was, I don't want to be the best company in the world that pays bills. Okay. Like I want to be the best advertise online advertising company. I don't want to be the best company that pays bills better than anybody else. Okay. So nothing against you, Steve, but that's an area where a good is good enough. Perfect for a BPO. That's a good perspective. All right. The third billion dollar question is on RPA mainly versus foundational platforms. In your past role, Stephen, you have been keen on transforming GBS with a mix of automation and human capital. What is your view on tools like RPA first and maybe a little bit on AI if you have done anything in the AI space? My first RPA was at Liberty Source. I did uh, some robotics for discovery communications at, uh, at Liberty Source. I'm a big supporter. So, at, you know, Estee Lauder, we created our intelligent automations COE for the company, not even just in support of GBS. We support basically anyone in ELC across the globe that wants to do intelligent automation on, you know, in supply chain across wherever they come to us. Uh, so we own that COE and delivery area for robotics. So I, I know it pretty well. I would say that, uh, you know, I think robotics can get you so far. ERP guys, they have, you know, technology roadmaps. 
and then you're sprinkling this RPA in the middle of it, sometimes that could be in conflict with maybe where the roadmap is going. So the way I always dress that was RPA is simply a bridging mechanism, right? So it's when the ERP gets that functionality square and the patch is ready to be deployed and that solution, then we'll just turn off the RPA. No problem. Like it won't disrupt the destination of IT in their roadmap. The other thing I would say is process, process, process. Don't just jump right into RPA without fully doing, you know, end-to-end process, you know, mapping, because more often than not, if your intake isn't fully understood, you know, your robot can only do so much. They, they can't, if it's contamination coming in because the process wasn't fully understood, you're going to be frustrated because the robot is going to keep on falling over. In addition to the process or the intelligent automation, COE, one source says, uh, kind of founded itself and kind of evolved our service offering to call this, um, we have a process excellence platform of process mapping and all these other tools that you need before you even get to the the automation step. Got it. All right. So the next question is, uh, how do you transform GBS from a cost-cutting function? It generally tends to start as a cost operating cost reduction function to a revenue driver function, potentially a strategic partner with your business stakeholders? We, you know, I have this term front of the counter and behind the counter. So GBS, and we have our internal brand called OneSource is what we call ourselves, but we couldn't graduate to, to even thinking about adding a greater level of value over just cost cutting, unless you check the box on cost cutting, right? Like you can't skip that. It's like playing baseball. You can't skip first base. So Right out of the gate. So we did that, you know, job one. And so after we kind of proved over like a three-year, four-year stint that um, on average, anything that came to one source was one-third cheaper through a mix of uh, BPO or, you know, process reengineering or RPA or probably all three. At that point, you can now start talking about value, what I call value in front of the counter, like benefits to the company that's over and above because it's, it's about getting product in the hands of consumers the right product, the right consumer, the right time. And efficiency is now taken for granted at one source. Like when you give something to one source or GBS, it'll be a third cheaper at least. And we'll continue to work that price 5% a year. But now what we're finding is people are coming to us for right out of the gate, front of the counter help, meaning they need process help. They need the collateral, like when we do a new product launch, maybe isn't making it to the counter fast enough and the product is launched and they don't have, the beauty advisors don't have what they need to, to sell. So we have to dig into that process and figure out what's holding up the collateral from getting to the counter, like things like that, diagnostics, and then like fixing the process going forward. Those are, they didn't come to us to just save one third dollars, right? I would say maybe target a couple of key customers that really value you and use them as an example of how your equivalent front of the counter, like a non just cost cutting story, have that, you know, kind of cultivate that and then have that person tell the story, have that, have one of your customers tell the story of how they're leveraging the internal GBS organization for something more than just saving money. Right. And then what you'll see is that their peers will start to view GBS a little bit differently. And don't be afraid to share the mic, man. I always talk about sharing the mic. So share the mic with your customer. If your customer is better, the best marketing person you can ever hire. All right. 
Everyone seems to be confused even about ERPs versus modern niche software platforms. What's your view on the trade-off between ERP solutions like SAP, Oracle, and software platforms? Of course, companies like HiRadius, you have other niche companies like Coupa, Blackline, and others. I've you know, sold ERPs, I've installed ERPs. So I was you know part of that community for many parts of my years. And then also you know, buying that software on, on the customer side. So across all the different platforms. I, I do think that ERP was a bit oversold in the beginning. And I was part of that system integrator world that was overselling it, where it was doing everything, right? You're going to like, you know, back to that technology architecture page was all one color, right? Like that was the, you know, the ERP was going to do it all. They, that obviously has not happened, right? So I'm very much a subscriber of ERP being like a kernel, a uh, core, and with, with uh, the wrappers being all the SaaS solutions that are specialized and can are a lot more adaptive and are a lot more agile in responding to kind of the ever-needing changes of the, either the consumer or the end user or the business models. This is years and years ago. I remember it was like... Uh, S2, I think, not even S3. Microsoft is one of the very first uh, SAP clients uh, in the country. So they've been a longstanding, I'm pretty sure they're probably still a SAP client. And they only had like, uh, they used like all the modules, but they only really had like less than 100 logins to SAP, right? But, the, you know, they ran their org- their global organization on it. And they just wrapped it. Now they're a software company. So they wrapped it with their software in a lot of cases. So not every company like Estee Lauder couldn't do that. We don't write software. But it, it was a bit of a tell, right? The tell was there was better software to put on the front end for end user experience than the ERP. And I just think that that has kind of, uh, and that's, that's a dated story. That's a probably a 20-year-old story. But look, kind of what's happened in the marketplace. The ERPs are, are still there. There's portions of the ERPs that are like exposed to the end users, like maybe in supply chain or finance or specialized areas. But when you have broad end user exposure, those are SaaS zones for me. Those are total SaaS zones because better user experience, more nimble, easier than uh, than navigating an ERP. All right. Closing question. Stephen, what would you like to leave your listeners with as some parting advice? I'd say manage GBS like a business, uh, think of it as a business. You know, it's come a long way in 20 years before, uh, you know, I'm a finance guy from my early, early days. And I think today there are people that will spend their whole careers in GBS and because there's so many different flavors of GBS. I think GBS is here to stay. It's proven that it's here to stay. Uh, it'll have different evolutions, but I think the the concept is uh, is sound and it is, it, you, you are a a practitioner of something, just like there's a finance practitioner and a supply chain practitioner and an HR. I think there's a GBS practitioner world. And, and it's a nomenclature that all multinationals know about it. Even smaller companies know about shared services and GBS. Like I've been in GBS and then I've taken spins through running P&Ls. And that's just because CEOs saw how I spoke about GBS. And they saw that I spoke about it like a division. Like and how I ran that division, I happen to not have any revenue, but I ran it like a division, and I think that uh, that translates well because it's happened uh, what two or three times in my career where I have actually done GBS and then spun into P and L roles on the other side, and so I think that's an exciting, and I think you know some proven some big leaders that have kind of spun out and run companies have gone through GBS like had run GBS, created GBS, and then gone on to bigger things uh, in their companies. So 
I do think how you do GBS, just like how you do finance and HR, is ever-changing. That's why my Estee Lauder Shared Service Center, which I love and I, which I think is you know my best creation yet, looks a lot different than my 1996 Rider Systems one in Alpharetta, Georgia. So I just think that'll continue to evolve. There was a time at Estee when I uh, was meeting with the CFO and we were uh, wrestling some topic and and I said, well, geez, you know, um, I've done this before, that before. And the CFO said, well, maybe this chapter isn't in your book, Steve. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe so. And one of the chapters is a strong culture that we talk about connecting hearts. And it's like, and that's part of the Estee Lauder culture is because values is a big part. We have this thing called top note, heart note, base note. So uh, top note is being easy to work with. Heart note is the employees at the center of everything we do. And uh, the base note is results. We bring results to the business each and every day. And that's the way we operate. That's the way we talk to each other. I can't say I had that kind of, you know, you know, easy to digest operating style in some of my previous GVSs. And I think that's a new chapter, right? Of just how, you know, how we want to manage these things going forward. All right. Yeah. Stephen, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you so much. It was a delight to have you on the GBS Mastermind. Great seeing you again. Great seeing you again, Sashi. And thanks for the opportunity. That was the GBS Masterminds podcast. For more information, visit gbsmasterminds.com and make sure to search for GBS Masterminds in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at High Radius, thanks for listening. Thank you.